When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Upland Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. On this special edition of the Project Upland Podcast, we look back at 99 episodes. Welcome to the show for episode number 100. Project Upland Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription today. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you're prepared determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance. So when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And by CZ USA Shotguns, shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind. From the Bob White and Sharp Tail side-by-sides to the Upland Ultralight, Wing Shooter Elite over and unders. They've got pumps, they've got semi-autos. CZ USA has a shotgun for you. Head over to cz-usa.com to learn more. And by Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. One-piece rotomold design, frame steel door, everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip. Head over to dakota283.com today. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Tyler Z. Tyler left us a review on the iTunes podcast app, and for that, 
We thank him. Project Upland t-shirt headed his way very soon. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you've got to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review in the podcast app. We love those. Subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast. Send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. We do love to hear from our listeners. You can email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, everybody. This week marks the 100th episode of the Project Upland podcast. We are in year three of the Project Upland podcast. This has been an absolute blast for me to do. It's one of the most meaningful and impactful things I've ever had the pleasure of working on. And that is all due to the folks that tune in and listen regularly, contribute with their feedback, their suggestions. I cannot thank you enough for listening, liking, rating, reviewing the Project Upland podcast. I am forever indebted to my listeners And I think we'll just keep going right on past episode number 100. But for now, today, episode 100, we are going to take a look back at 10 memorable clips from the 99 previous episodes of the Project Upland podcast. This is not a top 10 list per se. As I went back and looked through all of my previous guests, I was filled with gratitude for all of these people that have taken the time to contribute and make the Project Upland podcast what it is today. Of those 99 episodes, I selected 10 segments that are roughly four to six minutes each, and I believe that these 10 segments are a pretty good summarization of what the Project Upland podcast has been so far. The topics are varied, the guests are dynamic, the conversations were fun, interesting, and I hope all of you enjoy either re-listening to some of these segments and being reminded of the meaningful contributions that our guests have made to this show. And if you haven't listened to the episodes, I hope that each of these individual segments perhaps piques your interest enough to go back and check them out. I will say, going back and combing through some of the episodes, it's always been my goal to make this podcast better and better with every week, and we have come a long, long way since episode number one. So for those of you that have been with us from the start, thank you so much. You deserve a badge of honor. I believe that episode 99 of the Project Upland podcast is a whole heck of a lot better than episode number one, and we're going to do everything we can to make sure that continues well into the future. As we move through the clips today, I will take you in and out of each one, give you a little bit of a setup, tell you who the guest is, what we're talking about. And I just want to say again, thank you to each and every person that has ever listened to and made a contribution to the Project Upland podcast. This podcast was built around the Project Upland community, the Upland community. I would not be doing it today if it weren't for you guys and girls that listen and tune in and let us know how much you love the podcast. So thank you very much. I hope you enjoy this episode, and we will see you again on episode 101, back to our regularly scheduled Project Upland podcast programming. And with that said, we are going to jump into the first clip, which is from episode number 28, titled How to Be a Better Wing Shooter with Keith Coyle. During this clip, Keith paints a picture for us of the Churchill method of wing shooting, some of his training, some of his background. He walks us through some of the steps and sheds some light on how we can all be better wing shooters. I wanted to ask, kind of rewinding right back to when you first started, you went to shoot clay pigeons with your friend and you said you were hooked as far as you you were interested right away. Were you a natural shot? Were you a natural shot right out of the gate, or did you have to figure your way through it? No, I had to figure my way through it. Uh, I'd just come out of the Army, uh, and of course, uh, even though not coming out of the Army, I was, I was a typical man. Uh, I mean, because all of us men believe we can shoot. And of course, what we do is that we base uh, this uh, shooting inheritance on the fact, of course, well, yeah, we're hunters and and, of course, every man expects to know how to shoot. And the problem <laughs> is, and it still is today, 98% of us who shoot shotguns immediately come, come to it thinking that all we have to do is apply the principles of shooting a rifle. Yep. Well, that's, no, that's, I learned very, you know, and I did that in the beginning. But after, the, after this first lesson, you know, I, I realized that, hey, all I've got to do is point it. You know, you, you, you actually only need to point it. And, so it took me a bit of time to do it. And, of course, I follow the route. You know, I start shooting. I had a couple of lessons. And as much as the chap was a, a, a good old 
coach, he actually wasn't teaching me the real right thing because he'd never been taught to be a coach. He'd never done his, his any coaching courses or anything. So you had to work at it. So now, so I go from like 1980 up to literally 1990 where I meet Roger and I'm not doing too bad. You know, I'm shooting clays. I shoot pre-mounted gun up or, or high guns, experts in here. Then of okay. course, you see all, all these good guys shooting gun down. And I naturally start imitating them without any understanding of why really I'm doing it. I mean, as we all do. So of course I go along and go along. And of course I meet Roger and it's like that Blues Brothers moment. I remember when we were in the, the classroom doing the bit and he really showed me how a gun, a shotgun needs to be mounted to the face and not to the shoulder and how easy it actually is. And then when I met Roger, I then relearned to shoot again. I, I relearned the Silcox, which is the Churchill method. And it, it's really just very simple. It's just about using your natural instinct and your natural ability to point. So it's, it's you, you like you come full circle. You know, you'll go out there thinking, you know, at the beginning, shooting it like a rifle. No, wrong thing to do. Rifle's got nothing to do with it. And if I can say to the, the listeners now, if you are shooting your shotgun like a rifle, then it's like trying to play golf but with tennis techniques. <laughs> they're, they're, they're similar games, but you, 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 it's just completely different. And so I learned with Roger. But, but again, if you go back to the Churchill's technique, incredibly simple. It's just based on your instinctive ability to be able to point. The most important thing about the whole system, though, is being able to bring the gun up to your eye in the most efficient and consistent manner, which regrettably... We none of us, we, none of us men, really pay enough attention to it. it it's just we, you know we don't think about it. But it's very simple. It's very easy to do because basically all all the barrels of your shotgun are, are are is an extended pointing finger. What we have to learn is to line that extended finger up with our eye and the object at which we're going to point, which we're going to shoot. Um, and that takes a bit of doing because you don't put the gun in your shoulder. You put the gun under your cheekbone. So the rib of the gun lines up with your right. And you have to do that. You don't put it in the shoulder and drop the head down to the gun. That's the last thing you should do. But regrettably, it's the most common thing that we see, you know, we, we see people do. Everybody thinks, got to put, oh, I've got to put the gun in your shoulder. No. Put the gun, it comes up to your eye, then you put the gun in the shoulder. Because all the shoulder is, is basically a backstop to keep that long finger under your right. It's, it's, that's the basic simplicity of it. Just point your finger. And of course, as Churchill says, he never believed in, in you, you never shoot lead with the system that, that he does. It's, a, it's an unconscious natural ability. And also, as a gun fitter, the one thing I was taught, what Churchill says, is you never fit a gun to a poor technique. What you do is you make the shooter use the correct technique to mount the gun and stand properly. That's when you can do and start a definitive fit. And, and I hope that's exactly what I do. I, I, you know, if you come to me for a, uh, for your lesson, the first thing we do is I check the way you stand. And most critically, it's the way you mount the gun. If you mount the gun in the in the in the correct way, in the inefficient manner, um, you end up either shortening the stock or overlengthening the stock because your head's not in the right place. Lots of things like that. But Churchill, it's just very instinctive, and it's just all about just based around pointing the finger. All right, this next clip comes from episode number 29, back-to-back, titled All About Grouse Dogs with Jerry Coulter of Northwoods Bird Dogs. Jerry played an interesting role in the development of the Project Upland podcast in that he is the breeder of my first bird dog, the dog that has led me on an upland hunting journey that I can say without a doubt I would not be on had I not taken my English setter Hartley home during the summer of 2014. Jerry has forgotten more about grouse dogs than I will ever know, and he and I had an excellent conversation all about grouse dogs on episode number 29. We're going to wrap up quickly. I've got one other thing to ask you, but I want to ask you about this because I always remember you saying that you felt that it took four years to make a grouse dog and that, you know, you have your first year and then you got years two and three and 
by the time that dog's four, that's when he's stepping into his prime. And I know enough to know that a dog doesn't wake up one day and say, oh, I'm four years old now. Everything's, I'm going to be perfect. I, I know that. But, but talk a little bit about that sort of time frame and what you've seen from dogs, you know, as they, as they sort of hit that point in their hunting career and then what lies ahead. Yeah. I mean, it's just a progression. I mean, one of the things that's unfortunate about a grouse dog and one of the reasons, and also that makes it so difficult is it's such a short season and a dog only gets so much experience. But if you go hunt quail in the South or you can go hunt different species for a whole winter, three or four or five months, I mean, that's a ton of experience. Now they're not grouse but they're still wild birds, but you get a grouse dog. I mean, they're only getting out, let's say, I don't know. I don't think many guys hunt 20 days. I mean, there are guys and some may hunt even more than that, but I'll bet your average grouse hunter, wow, that hunts a lot, maybe hunts 12 or 15 times. And that's, you know, that's not that much. I mean, it's a lot, but it's still not that much. And those dogs just have to get enough bird contacts and they'll get better and better and better. And again, the more birds they find, not necessarily the sooner they come on because it's also a factor of maturity in a dog. And if you look at the dog age, I mean, you know, that first year they're, they're young. And in the second year is usually a kind of a trouble year because they're now they're not just young, but they also think they know a whole bunch because they had that first year. <laughs> and then they come into that third year, they start putting things together. And then by that fourth year, that's when I like to say, and you don't get me wrong, you have a lot of successes all up and down, you know, through the yep. time from the puppy on. But by that fourth year, that's the time you start that dog cast out there and he knows he knows what the cover's like to smell the grouse hanging. So even though you turn him loose here in an old woods, he smelt that fifteen, eighteen year old aspen cut hundred yards away and off he goes that way, you know. So not only can they handle the birds better, but they really know where to find them. And they're physically mature enough to just say, Okay, I'm cool. I know what I'm doing. I know what's expected of me and I'm happy doing it. And that's that's what comes, you know, you might get some sooner and you do get some later, but that's kind of the age. If you put that as a, as a check mark and say, by four, I want them here. And again, that doesn't mean you just let them sit in your house until he's age four. I mean, you've had to put them <laughs> into birds and birds and birds and birds, but yeah. that is still is a pretty good age. And, um, if you look through the old grouse literature and stuff way back when I've kind of, I'm a collector of old dog training books. And, um, they, even then they say the same thing and I, and I, that just hasn't changed. Yeah. Excellent. All right, two questions here, Jerry, before I let you go. And uh, as we talked about before I we started recording, we could we could probably go on and on about this. But one, you just mentioned books. So any off the top of your head good book recommendations, whether they're whether they're upland hunting or dog training, some favorite books. You know, that's really hard because um, there's you know if you ask ten ten guys how to train a dog, you're going to get ten different ways. You know, and yeah. I think what's important is you you find a way that that kind of resonates with you, whoever person is that has the dog and kind of go with it you know i mean there's a classical book i i really go back to probably the best book i've ever seen by cb whitford and it's called training the bird dog it was in the early 1900s and that guy just nails it i mean he just nailed it he talks about anticipation and training now they don't you know they teach the command they didn't have e-collars back then a lot of different things but but dogs haven't changed that much and if anything it's a little easier for us now but um that's still the best book i've ever had i mean hunt close by jerome robinson was written quite a while ago. Um, I haven't really read Ben O'Williams' book, but I think I think he's kind of right on. The people that have told me about it say he just kind of lets them develop naturally. And I think that, that's kind of the thing. I mean, if you, again, if you want a wild bird dog and you buy a well-bred dog that's been used for that, the most important thing you can do is just take them hunt and let the dog learn. Perfect. And perfect segue into my kind of final question here. Let's say we got somebody listening that is Maybe they're thinking about their first bird dog, or maybe they're just thinking about their next bird dog, but they're not quite sure where to start. You know, no matter no matter the breed, no matter the style, pointer, flusher, what recommendations do you have for people that are that are seeking out their next dog? Well, I mean, I'd say if they're looking at buying a puppy, I mean, when you go to buy a puppy, unless you know the breeder and you know the parents and you've seen the dogs, you're you're not really buying a puppy, you're buying the breeder. So I'd say you want to go out and you want to meet that breeder and you want to really get an understanding of where they're coming from and what they do with their dogs and how they figure out which dogs they breed. Because when you go looking at litter of puppies, you know, especially if you bring your family and you have a wife and kids or something, I mean, you're probably going to get one. So you better make sure that you did your homework, whatever breed it is. I mean, that, that's what I would say. If you want a grouse dog, your highest odds are going to be finding somebody who's the parents of hunting grouse dog, which most important is the parents, 
very important are the grandparents and not some name on a pedigree, but the actual dog and what they did. That's, that's what you want to do. You, you really have to vet the breeders because there's a lot of people out there that breed dogs and, and some of them are really good and some of them aren't that good. So if you want a, if you want a good grouse hunting dog, you definitely want to get it from stock that have been used for that for several generations, even better. Next up, we go to episode number 40, titled The Last Frontier, Upland Hunting the Alaskan Interior with Jim McCann. This was such a fun conversation talking to Jim McCann. I had to stop myself from going back and re-listening to the entire episode because I had work to do to pull together episode number 100. Jim talks to us about hunting sharp-tailed grouse in the interior of Alaska, and he paints a picture for us during this clip that gets me excited thinking about fall. Let's hear from Jim on episode number 40. I'm probably not breaking news to anybody here. Alaska is big, but <laughs> but that adds that also adds to some of the allure, I think, and the adventure and the thrill, and it's why it sort of has the reputation that it does. Sure. but And, and other than Ptarmigan, really, the interior region is where where it's really happening for uh, for upland hunting. You know, the size of the state, you know, it's just, it's a little confusing because a lot of that is, is uh, southeast where there are no grouse, and, sure. and a lot of it up in the north is Arctic where there are no grouse. And, uh, but you get down to the interior and uh, where the boreal forest uh, rules, and uh, that's where they are, and they've been here for a long time. I, uh, I recently did some research for an article I was doing, and, you know, it's... It, 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 it seems that back in the Ice Age, Alaska, or interior Alaska, and parts of the Yukon Territory in Canada were the only places not under ice in North America. Wow. And, yeah, and, uh, you know, the uh, the Bering Land Bridge, uh, yes. uh, something like 18,000 years ago was there, but, it, but about 11,000 years ago, uh, there was a lot of climate change, probably like what we're going through now, but... Uh, but Water then covered the land bridge, so no more dinosaurs came across there. No more indigenous people traveled over there. But all the critters that were on this grassland, uh, they either perished or they had to adapt. And the sharp-tailed grouse adapted, and they went from total grassland birds to life in, in and around the boreal forest. And to me, it makes them a really awesome bird to hunt with your dogs. You know, a lot of your listeners know about sharp-tail hunting in the plain states, yes. you know, the open grassland areas. Well, we find a lot of birds in grass, too, but they also frequent the woods, the aspen woods. Not quite as thick woods as you would find rough grouse normally, although you could. But if you can imagine, you're hunting your dogs through an aspen forest, and up ahead, they, they break out into a, a park-like area. You know, it's, it's, it's aspen and brush, but it's, it's more sparse. There's a, lot of, there's a hole in the canopy, and there's sunlight coming in, and there's blueberries on the ground and kinnikinick berries, and your dogs are on point. And you move in, shotgun at the ready, and you don't know what's going to come up. You're hoping, <laughs> I guess, you're hunting rough grouse. It could be a rough grouse, but it could also be 5, 10, 15, 20, maybe even more sharp-billed grouse. I have one place that I hunt uh, like that, and I call it pandemonium. <laughs> and even the even the dogs, when we're going in there, have that look, you know, like, oh, man, we're going in. And they go in, they catwalk around, they get more cautious. And a lot of times when we go in there, there's nothing. But then there are many times when we go in there, and there are sharp tails coming up. I mean, cackling, and they're going to the left, the right, ahead of me, above me, at me. Of course, I often miss with both barrels in those situations, <laughs> but, yeah. but, but it, it's crazy. It's crazy. So they, I like the fact that they're, they're not rough grouse, but they're also in some of that woods and present different shots, something different than the, the open grassland shots. Jim, that is that is a hell of a picture that you just painted for us, and I can I can tell you my heart rate was elevated <laughs> a little bit. I've got some videos too that someday will be coming out too. So oh, excellent! It's it's crazy fun. Yeah, well, you know, it's very interesting that you mentioned that, and it really hits home for me personally because the sharp-tailed grouse 
is a bird that I've I've known about, but I really haven't paid much attention to, even though I've now realized that there are very small local populations not too far away from my hometown of Duluth, Minnesota. And it's a bird that with my first trip out west coming up here in just a couple of weeks, I'm I'm starting to pay more attention to it. And I'm looking into some projects, some habitat projects, because there used to be a lot more sharp-tailed habitat in this area. And there is some really cool work being done by state and county forestry offices in order to bring some of that habitat back. And it's like you speak. You know, we're talking areas that are pretty much in the middle of rough grouse country, northern Minnesota, northern Wisconsin, where it is an area where you could, if you were on the fringe of that open park-like setting, mm-hmm. you you could walk in there and you wouldn't know what was going to get up. And what a neat opportunity. I've had the chance to now see my dog point some sharp tails and hear them and see them get up. And they are yep. they are an incredible bird, absolutely. Oh, they are. They're, you know, my first love will always be the rough grouse because I grew up hunting the rough grouse. But, uh, but Alaska's sharp tails, at least, come in a real close second. Uh, and I sure enjoy them. I have a blast. And we, and we live in a target-rich environment, so uh, it's it's not really that hard to get a daily limit of five birds in the area that I usually hunt. And you can take more birds in another in other areas, the, the larger area of the interior, but up to 15. But I've I've never had a desire to shoot 15 birds in a day. But uh, wow! But in this one area that I this large area where there's a lot of um, farms and whatnot and a lot of openings. Uh, yeah, the limit is five a day, and it's. Uh, I, I'm always finding myself just holding off on shots, trying to prolong the day's hunt. It's crazy. All right, next up, we transition to episode number 42 Mapping and Hunting Rough Grouse and Woodcock with Ann Janderna. Anne has been a regular guest on the Project Upland podcast. I've made it a point to interview her prior to each and every fall season that I've been doing the Project Upland podcast. She is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to grouse and woodcock hunting and grouse dogs. And this clip features some of Anne's deep, deep knowledge when it comes to finding and hunting rough grouse. Okay, back to heavy and light soils that's really interesting it's it's something that i've actually paid attention to over the past few years because i my hunting used to be limited to an area that i would consider heavy soil and over the past few years i've started hunting some more areas that have lighter soil so at first i kind of had the feeling like what the heck is all this sand i don't know what (laughs) i don't know what kind of aspen grows out of this sand but it's not the same aspen that i'm used to walking in but you're telling me that this year I might want to pay a little extra attention to that sandy aspen. Well, yeah, because just for drainage, I mean, um, drainage purposes, you're still going to need the stem density. Yep. You know, you still need the stem density, and the growth rate rate can be a little bit different on sand than it can be on heavier soils. Um, sure. Uh, you know. You have a drought on on sandy soil with aspen, and you're going to stunt it a little bit. And so you really got to look at your canopy. And one of the ways to judge the floor of the cut is that you're going to see, and you need to look this up for some of you, bunch berries and strawberry leaves. Those those plants won't grow when there's a bunch of when there's too much um, open. You know, they, they need a decent canopy. So, you know, you got to look at that and you're, you know, basically if, you, if you're walking down, excuse me, down the trail, it's no big deal, but you need to get off the trail and you need to go in and cast in the cut and look at the quality of the cut, quality of the floor. You know, I'm always enthused when I can go into a cut, and this is going to sound crazy, but if I find feathers, I'm always looking for feathers. I don't have to see droppings. I have to see feathers because feather means that someone's molting and getting their feathers and stuff. And if I find them on logs, I find them on stumps. I mean, I find them on a, a moss rock. I know there's birds in there. Yep. You know, and that. And, you know, you'll find the fluffy ones that, you know, were, were shed not that long ago because if you get a rain on it, it sort of mats it in. Yep. And, and then you're looking for, you know, Areas with uh, nesting bowls, you know, like 
you know, it's really not a nesting bowl, but it's a bowl they sit down in, you know, and they sort of, you know, that's that's the time when you walk by and you get about two feet down past this one area and pfft, right behind you, the bird goes up and it's like, where the heck was that? Well, that bird was just sitting yep. right over there. And then dusting sites. Um, so, you know, when you look at a cut, that sand is could affect either too thin or too thick. And sand compacts actually easier than your regular soils. Um, I can remember we would subsoil um, the fields down in lower Michigan. We ran close to a 2,000-acre farm. And you'd get out there with the subsoil behind a big, big uh, eight-wheel tractor, um, and you just drop it in the ground just to break up that hard pan so things would grow better. And you'll see that a lot of the areas where if, you know, even on regular soil, if they compacted it, if you see that, you know, it's really weedy in a lot of it, there's a chance some of that got compacted, um, you know, because then it stunts the growth of other trees. But what you're looking for is consistency in canopy uh, okay. throughout the cut, and the sand will allow it to drain. Um, I'm not saying every area you have to be on sand. Right. But I've got, I got a feeling you're going to have to cast around. You know, this is going to be as much as you're going to try this cut and that cut and this cut. Think about the quality of the cut, what the floor is like, and also think about um, what would happen in that cut if you got four to six inches of rain. How much water is going to pool in that, or does it just drain off? Yep. That's that's really important when you're, you know, especially in June. That is... I feel like that's that's like graduate level stuff, Ann. Yeah, I guess I don't think about it too much. You know, I just sort of run with it, but I, I like it. <laughs> I think it's I think it's really it's very very interesting information for the dedicated, passionate grouse hunter, but also for somebody just starting out. I mean, that is that is invaluable information. Next in line, we go to episode number 56, Upland Hunting, Gathering, and Cooking with Hank Shaw. Hank Shaw needs no introduction from me. It was a pleasure to have him on the Project Upland podcast, and he certainly lived up to his reputation in sharing with us some excellent information regarding gathering, prepping, and cooking upland game birds and he walks us through one of those methods during this clip on the Project Up and Podcast. You're welcome. <laughs> that sounds delicious, Hank. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, so we got to dive in there because we brought you on here to talk about cooking a little bit. And complete confession, like I am such a simple wild game cook. I mean, I have like the whole world is my oyster. Like I could I could do so much more. And when you start talking about that stuff, I mean, it just sounds awesome. But starting with, with pheasant, quail, cottontail, maybe you want to give, I mean, I think we talked about it earlier. I don't know if you want to give a, like a high level description of what people can find in there, but then let's go upland birds kind of ABCs. Sure. Where do you want to start? Along the lines of plucking the bird, right? Like that's, sure. that's something that that somebody right because that's the gateway have, to a lot of this right right so let me give you the the easiest tip that i can give you and i learned this through experience upland birds and i'm talking about all the chicken like birds you know, let, let's just go through them all right so start with doves and pigeons okay doves and pigeons are the easiest birds to pluck in the world uh, it's one of the reasons why your dog doesn't want to bring them back because the feathers fall off in his mouth they i can pluck a dove in 90 seconds it's ridiculously easy all you do is just is you i mean the problem with people when they come to upland birds and uh, of any kind and they have experience plucking ducks and geese, they, they manhandle the bird too much because the skin on a duck or a goose is considerably stronger than sure. it is on an upland bird. So you've got to actually you, you just, you know, be nice guys. Just like, just take the feathers off, you <laughs> know? And, and like I, I taught Andrew Zimmer on a, on his TV show, how to, how to do doves. And his first one, he was just trying to manhandling it, and he just like, you know, rubs his thumb right through the skin. Like, eh, just chill down, chill down, you know, you'll you'll get it. Yep, <laughs> it's just, yep. it's not that hard. Um, so there, that's the easiest for dozen pigeons. And then the next easiest is a Jake turkey. I typically do not 
pluck gobblers because that skin is really, really thick and leathery. Uh, but hens in the fall and then jakes in the spring, uh, those are fantastic plucked. And they're very easy to pluck. You can just, you know, the skin's hard enough where you're not going to rip it. So those are the two extremes. Now, the hardest are all the other birds that we're talking about. Well, woodcock are pretty easy to, to pluck, actually. Yeah, you can pluck a woodcock fairly easily. But all the chicken-like birds, they're, the problem is they have delicious skin, but it's very, very thin. So the time that everybody wants to pluck their quail or their pheasant or their chucker or whatever is exactly the wrong time to do it, which is to say the evening after the hunt or the morning after the hunt. So people are like, well, isn't the bird going to get go off? Like, no, it's not going to go off. So first of all, be a, you know, hunt as you would. And then in the truck, don't pile your birds up. Get them out of your vest and line them side by side. So they're, they're just one bird in one layer. Yep. So that's going to let them cool off quicker. So you drive home, put them in a, well, I'm, I'm assuming it's normal fall temperatures. If it's normal sure. fall temperatures, put them in a plastic bag and put them in the refrigerator. And if it's, if it's hot, get them to room temperature and then get them in the fridge. So kind of do it in stages because you, because otherwise they're going to sweat inside the bag if they're, if they're warm. Interesting. So don't, don't change the temperature too drastically. It, yeah, like ratchet it cooler and cooler until you get yep. to uh, refrigerator temperature. Okay. Now, this is the joke I always use. It's like, okay, so you, what you want is you want to line your birds in the refrigerator faces out at the eye level of your children. So you, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So after the screaming subsides. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, but in all seriousness, just you know, throw them in the refrigerator in a plastic bag or whatever um, for two to three days. So let's say my hunt was on Saturday. So Saturday is day one, Sunday is day two, Monday is day three. So you're going to want to pluck them on Monday afternoon or Monday evening or Tuesday or Wednesday. Anytime you do it before that and the feathers are going to be stuck to that skin so tight that even I will rip the skin. And I'm very good at this. It's just not, it's just not easy to do it until that bird has rested out. And it'll be safe. It'll be perfectly fine. The, the thermal inertia of a really big bird like a turkey, those you would have to those you would have to um, eviscerate first. Every other bird is holing in the feathers. It'll okay. be fine. And it, it, I've done hundreds of birds like this. It'll be fine. So you can leave them in there as long as five or six days, maybe seven tops. But that's it. And so you you do one bird at a time, and you sit there and you just you you just pluck it and. Now, the thing with all these gallinaceous birds are they've got fancy feathers and they've got under feathers. So the fancy feathers are basically all the feathers that have some color on it. But in between those fancy feathers are generally kind of grayish under feathers. The little grayish under feathers come off super easy. All of the other feathers, you have the, you have the, 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 the potential to rip the skin. And so the nastiest areas are going to be on the, on the outer edges of the breast and on the and on the thighs and the flanks of the thighs. So those are the two areas because they're a they're covering skin that you want to keep, and b they're very long. And sometimes you just have to pick those one at a time. And okay. but it's like pop 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 pop, you know, when you're doing it. And so it's not like pluck pluck pluck. It will be when you start. But once you get, I mean, the joke is that the first thousand are hard, but <laughs> which is true. But uh, I, you know, you I would say you'd probably be in good shape after about six to six to ten birds and before you get it right and there's a rhythm to it there's a zen to it and you know it takes about 10 minutes a bird when you're good at it Next up, we go to episode number 63 titled shot shell technology and development with federal ammunition. This conversation occurred when I took a trip to the Federal Ammunition Headquarters right here in Minnesota, sat down with three very knowledgeable gentlemen, and we had a fascinating conversation about shot shell technology and development. And this clip happens to feature a little conversation about payloads, square loads, and maybe even a little myth-busting. Check it out, episode number 63 of the Project Dublin Podcast. You know, that brings up some 
another interesting question that I have and kind of getting down to the weeds here, which I think is perfect because we got the right people in the room for it. There is a lot of tradition. I don't know if that's the right word, but as far as standard payload for a specific gauge, whether it's three quarter ounce and a 28 gauge, seven eighths and a 20 ounce for 16 and an ounce and an eighth and 12 gauge. Mm -hmm. I have heard that a lot of that was sort of developed a long time ago. And today, most people that are buying shotgun ammunition know that you can buy, you know, I can go out and buy a one ounce in a 28 gauge. I have heard that, you know, modern ammunition sort of negates some of that old square load talk in theory. Can you talk about that a little bit as far as kind of like what has technology done for ammunition that allows you to create, you know, a higher payload in a a specific gauge? Sure. Well, I mean, uh like everything, there's advancements. There's advancements in propellants. There's advancements in materials, in wads, um, in shot types. Uh, so, so as things progress and we and we get better and smarter and and propellants that are capable of you know launching a 28 gauge at you know uh, one ounce of 28 gauge at 1250, yep. you know where you're not limited to that three quarter ounce anymore. Um, the, so the you mentioned square load. Mm-hmm. Um, there there is some truth in that. Um, like efficiency-wise on how well your shotgun patterns, the the better you maintain uh, a smaller L over D, so that your your payload is is about as tall as it is wide. It it, it is patterns more efficiently. So if you think of a 410, very skinny, very tall mm-hmm. shot column, tends to pattern less efficient than a 12 gauge one ounce load would, just on how many pellets are in that payload and how many hit the target when I shoot it. The 410 is generally not going to perform as well as a 12 gauge load um, and we actually did a, a pretty fairly in-depth study for an article in, in field and stream a few years back that compared the bore diameter versus the pattern efficiency and it was mostly directly linear in in going from 410 up through 28 20 16 12 10 and that line of efficiency was was almost right on par um, so as those loads became you know, not as tall and narrow, the L over D came down, the pattern efficiency went up. So were in that article, were you, sh- were you shooting the same, same payload in we, each gauge? We were trying to, you know, same shot size, same velocity, yep. um, and then standard payloads for those gauges. So whether that's a 11 sixteenths in a 410 or a one and an eighth ounce in a 12 gauge, we kind of picked the, the bread and butter for each gauge and, and compared them to each other. Sure. And I believe we even did it with, you know, lead and steel, um, to get that baseline. Okay. Yeah, I've looked at it like y- you talk to hunters who shoot 10 gauge, mm-hmm. and they're like, I shoot the lights out every time I shoot 10 gauge. If you look at the payloads and velocities, it's not a lot different from a 12 gauge three and a half. You know, they're almost the same. And right. the 12 gauge three and a half is pretty much crippled the 10 gauge for forever because you can you can buy it in a 12 gauge and you can use it's so much more diverse. But 10 gauge is patterned so much more efficiently, so you're not necessarily have more power. Yep. you're putting more pellets in a tighter space, yep. you know, so, and a 410 kind of goes the other way. 410 is kind of right. hard to hit with because now you got a little more open pattern. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it, I tr- the way we try to explain what's going on to people is you've got this interaction of a bunch of pellets stacked on top of each other and you've got a big force pushing these pellets. So as they come out of the barrel, you've got these spheres. If you think of a cue ball hitting a, a you know, a rack of a pool balls, the balls kind of go everywhere when you hit them. We kind of try to use that analogy and, and have people understand that you've got these forces pushing through these pellets, and when they come unreleased from the barrel, they kind of want to go in all different directions, whereas you have you know, a more of an even load, square load. Um, they're kind of more uniformly pushing on each other, and you don't have as much of those outside pellets losing, you know, losing away from the pattern. So Yeah. So based on the data, a 1-ounce 12-gauge load is more efficient than a 1-ounce 28-gauge load. Correct, exactly. So I hear that a lot. That breaks my heart, Ryan. (laughs) Now, I I know a lot of people that are convinced that they shoot their 28 better than they shoot their 12, and they probably do. They probably Mm -hmm. shoot because of recoil and other things. Mm -hmm. Um, If you shoot it, look, we can do the science, but... The shooter's got a lot of voodoo in yeah, there, and, and it's all between yeah. their ears. Yes. And if you think that you're shooting it better, then shoot that. Right. Because no. that, cause if you think you're shooting it better, you will shoot it better. Because yeah. part of, part of mm-hmm. shooting success is, is confidence and, and things. So we hear that a lot. Moving on, we go to episode number 65, Conversation with a Living Legend on Western Wings with Ben O'Williams. 
What an honor it was to interview Ben O. Williams on the Project Upland podcast. He brought his wealth of knowledge about Western hunting, bird dogs, shotguns. He brought all of it to this episode of the Project Upland podcast, and he reflected on his decades of experience, and in this clip provided a little bit of advice to the new Upland Hunter, episode number 65 with Ben O'Williams. I won't keep you too much longer, Ben, but speaking of new Upland Hunters, I, w- I want to get a- just a little bit of your advice and perspective while we have you on, uh, you know, maybe advice what you- that you have for people that, you know, you've been doing this for a long time, and th- but there are other people that are getting into Upland hunting every day, and they've got aspirations and all this stuff ahead of them what what advice would you maybe give somebody that's interested in upland hunting and and they want to get more into it well i think my advice would be to just like any other sport i think when you first start get into it rather gradually and make it fun and then don't make it hard work and that's just like fishing you know they like going out with a guide and beating the water and making i mean the most important thing about upland bird hunting, I think, is to have fun. To me, it's not—it's not the shooting, it's not the killing. It's—it's it's being out there in a something, a wonderful sport of being outside. Yeah. You know, and some people just do it, just like to hike without a gun. I, in the last few years, I—I I usually carry go. Well, I don't carry gun all the time. I have no, at my age and so forth, I have no desire to kill a bird anymore, but it's gone. In fact, a lot of times, if I'm with somebody by myself and a good flush happens, I just, I just raise my gun up and point and say, bang, you're dead and never shoot. And, <laughs> and, you know, it's just, but my, but my advice is to a beginner, it's important to hunt and to shoot. And that's part of it. Yes. But the other important thing is, is make it enjoyable what you do. If you, if you're not a hard walker, you know, don't kill yourself walking until you work into it. Like, like anything else, you know? Yeah. And I, I honestly believe if you want to, to really add to the upland bird hunting is to have a bird dog, you know? Yeah. To me, hunting, without a bird dog would be an empty exercise and I wouldn't do it. But, and I think shooting clays, there's, I don't, I don't shoot shooting clays and crap much anymore. I do shoot here a little bit just to, just to, just to tune up to get used to my guns, et cetera. But, and I think that's a nice sport to have, but I don't think it necessarily carries over to upland bird hunting. You know, I think it helps you, with learning to shoot a gun, but I don't think it carries over that much out in the field. But I think the important thing for any young person in hunting is to just like hiking and getting out and do it. If you like the outdoors, it's a wonderful sport. Yep, that's very true. I think a, a lot of people listening to this would be would be nodding their heads in agreement, Ben, and and I appreciate that. It's good advice, and I do know that we have we have some people listening that are towards the beginning of their upland hunting adventure and. It's very, very cool to talk to somebody that's been doing it for such a long time. And obviously, upland hunting has been a big part of your life, and it's meant a lot to you. And you've put a lot back into it, you know, with your research and your writing, and you've given a lot back to the upland hunting community. I have, and I haven't, but I've enjoyed it. And I think, I think bird hunting has really kept me young, and I'm not that young. Okay, so <laughs> I still do it, and I'm. There's not many guys get that can still go out at my age and still do it. That's and for do. sure. Yeah, and I really enjoy doing it. Moving on, we go to episode number 75. Another guest that has been featured on the Project Up and Podcast multiple times. Del Whitman, and in this episode, my co-host and friend Ted Summer, we took a trip over to Michigan to see Dell do some gun fitting, shoot some sporting clays, and in this clip, we talk the importance of gun fitting and how it can apply to shooting upland birds. Episode number seventy-five of the Project Upland Podcast.
the thing I want to say too is, you know, you know, first off, the, we're talking a lot about a trigun, but a, the trigun is just one of many tools that we use to ascertain what your ideal gun fit is. So, and the other thing, gun fit is it's a dynamic thing. You know, it can change if you gain or lose weight. It can change right. if you have a difference in posture. You know, I I had some issues with my knees, and my stance is a lot different than it used to be now. And I'm I'm kind of getting back to what my old stance is, so my guns fit a little differently. And it, it is a process, and there's, you know, a lot of guys will come back who are, who are serious shooters, and they'll have their gun fit assist, assessed every two or three years. Yep. You know, people can go through visual, you know, as you get older, your your vision changes, and, you know, maybe you might start to have an eye dominancy issue, and it's good to understand the concept of gun fit and kind of stay on top of it, and it really is, and in, in, when a gun fits well, you have confidence that's very important when you're in the field. I don't know if making you a better shot is the term I like to use, but it'll make you a more confident shot and put you in that zone where you really can concentrate on on making the shot in your surroundings and not, you know, God, did I put my cheek down hard enough this time? And yep. by that time, your two tenths of a second you have to shoot at that grouse is over and gone, and yep. you're shooting at leaves instead of mm-hmm. a grouse. Yep. Shots at grouse. Yep. 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 There you go. Yeah, that's a great point, and. You you talked about flow state earlier. You know, shooting is definitely it's one of those things where confidence, mental mindset framework it it requires conscious thought and preparation, and then it requires repetition, muscle memory. ahead of time. Because when you're in the field and you've got two tenths of a second to shoot at a grouse, none of that's happening. It's all muscle memory, right. and it's yep. it it's a that gun needs well, to come up naturally. Think of it like this, and I and I and I draw this from a golf analogy. And we were making fun of Nick playing golf earlier yep. today, but I heard it once said that that you know during a round of golf, the actual time that you spend swinging and the club is in contact with the ball for an 18-hole round of golf is like it's it's like two seconds. It's, I it's it. nothing. Yeah. And and think about you know how how long during a day of hunting, and you know depending on how many flushes you get. What is the actual amount of time you spend mounting that gun and pulling the trigger? Yeah. We're, we're talking about seconds. To put all of that machinery and that ability together and try to hit something that's flying at oblique weird angles with a moving shot pattern, it, it, again, I, I've said it before, but it's amazing we hit anything at all. Yeah. You know? Yep. So the, so they, less, the less you have to think about it, the better. You they know? talk about baseball being hitting a round ball with a round bat. And the ball is, you know, not traveling in a straight line coming at you. It's probably one of the hardest in sports to do. But I would, I would venture a guess that hitting a, an erratically flying rough grouse through typical grouse cover is right up there. Are you on the saying list you're better than A Rod? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. But here's the here's the key to hitting rough grouse is shooting a lot for yeah, me. So yes. we're talking like hundreds of wow. rounds a year. You know, your typical. I don't want to say typical, but Shooting the, fast and with deadly accuracy. Well, the average, That's, you know, the average bird hunter is maybe getting out there for four or five weekends mm-hmm. and feeling pretty good, like they got out a lot. Yep. Well, out of four or five weekends, and then you've got the next level of folks that are hunting during the week plus the weekends and, and are serious about it. I mean, if you're not putting out two or three hundred rounds a fall at birds, it's really hard to build a baseline of confidence. For sure, know, especially at grouse. You know, it's. <laughs> One second they're there, the next second they're gone. If your feet are out of position, you know, you, you need 20 flushes a day to get three it's, or four it, it, good shooting opportunities. Grouse and woodcock hunting is a tough sport to truly gain solid experience at. Yes. You know, and yep. for, for for shooters and for dogs, you know, that's why it's, you know, it is it is one of the more difficult, you know, subsets of upland hunting there is. So Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that kind of wing shooting, I mean, the argument could easily be made gun fit is even more important because we need every advantage we possibly could have you know you can't be absolutely if you're struggling with i mean we sat on the sporting clays range tonight like when you go out and you miss and you know you miss mounted the gun Mm -hmm. you know i brought the gun up bad and i just knew it and it's a clear miss so like anything in that gun that is going to make it more likely that you're going to mount it poorly or not get it up there you're worse off for it absolutely Nearing the end of this look back on the Project Upland podcast, we go to episode number 77, 
titled World Class Wing Shooting with David Radulovich. This was an excellent, excellent episode of the Project Dublin podcast. David Radulovich is a world champion sporting clays shooter. He's an upland bird hunter. He is a smart, smart guy, and he shared a ton of stuff with us on episode number 77 of the Project Upland podcast. In this particular clip, he walks us through how he prepares to shoot sporting clays and how he prepares to shoot while he's hunting upland birds. You don't want to miss this one. And I highly encourage you to go back and check out this episode if you haven't listened to it already. Episode number 77, World Class Wing Shooting with David Radulovich. But when mm-hmm. you are, let's say you are walking in on a point, do you have mm-hmm. like a mantra or like what's your, you know, if we're talking golf, what's your swing thought? What's going through your yeah. mind at that time? Great question. I think it would be cool. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a, I mean, my full length Do it. mantra, I guess, in, in shooting. Yes. Uh, in target shooting is extremely detailed. I'm going to give you a rough outline of that. And then I'm going to tell you what mine is in hunting. And so you can see the similarities. Cool. So when I'm in, when I go into a station and I, and I walk into the box and I, and the first thing I'm going to do is kind of, I'm, I'm big on spatial awareness, right? So I'm trying to observe what I have in front of me. I'm looking at the gaps in the trees. I'm looking at the topography. I'm looking at everything in terms of what's in front of me. I want to know it really well because that helps me read the line of the target, right? So it helps me gauge distances better. It helps me gauge the line of the target better because say I have a bird that looks like it's hugging the ground, but if the ground is rolling then the target's dropping and I don't realize it. So I'm trying to get a very good understanding of my, uh, of my surroundings. Secondly, I'm going to look at, start to look at where the traps are so I can see where they're coming from. Then I'm going to look at something like where are they, are there piles of targets somewhere I can see where they're going. Sure. Gives me a good understanding of, exactly what the target's going to be before I get the only two chances I get to look at it without shooting it. Once I do that, then I start thinking about my stance. Okay, so I'll, I'll look at the pair, I'll look at the, at the targets, and uh, then I'll position my body in a, in a way that both of the places that I w- have decided that I want to shoot them, I know that I have very little tension because that's important because what it allows me to do is have a lot of mobility around those breakpoints so that if something does get thrown off of my plan a little bit, I'm not going to be restricting my movement in any way that's going to influence the movement of my gun. Okay, so then basically after I've made that plan, figured out the line of the targets, figure out where I want to shoot them, figure out where I want to look, figure out where my body is, understand the background and the surroundings and everything like that. Then I set my gun up in the position that I know where the targets are coming from and I'll call pull and I'll make that move. Okay. So bring that into hunting. If I have a dog that goes on point, the first thing I'm doing is trying to see if, you know, I don't, I hunt with my dogs a lot and, and, uh, the one that we have, um, she may be pointing a certain way, but her eyes are looking another way and that's where the bird is. Gotcha. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, so the first thing I do is I look at the eyes of the dog and see, okay, where's the bird? If I, if I figure out I have a really good understanding of where the bird is, then I start to look at my surroundings. Okay. Do I have lane, lanes of trees in any certain way where if I was a bird, I'd let, you know, it'd be easier to fly into that way, which if you're hunting rough grouse is generally the opposite of where it's going to go. <laughs> yep. But, uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> so, but I'm looking for that. So I'm looking at, you know, lanes, I'm looking at, uh, you know, positioning of where are all my hunters, where are my dogs, because the bird's probably not going to fly in that direction. So let's position us in a way that it's going to fly away from and hopefully into a clear path. Once I figure that out, I'm trying to, I'm trying to look more towards the trees, make sure that I have a good movement all around me. So that I'm not going to run into any branch. I hunt a lot of public land up in Michigan. So a lot of times I don't have much room to move around if I have to. So I try to position myself in a way that I can move my gun and have the biggest range of, of a shot as possible. Then after that, and I kind of figure out where I think the bird's going to go, and I know where all my, my friends or family members are and the dogs, I'm going to try to position my feet and my body in a way that I, again, have a good range of motion in all the areas that I can shoot. Uh, and then pretty much after that, I'm just bringing the gun. I, I'm not pre-mounting the gun, but I'm one huge mistake that I see a lot of upland hunters make is is their position of the gun being down when the bird flushes. It's I, I never approach a, a bird coming out of a flush pre-mounting my gun, obviously. 
but I also don't ever approach it with the gun just hanging underneath my arm. Yeah, yeah. If I bring my gun out in front of my body, I can bring it up into my shoulder a lot easier than I can trying to bring it up out of my arm and then into my shoulder. So I bring, I'll bring the gun out, but not up. And then I, I'll send my cocker in and we'll flush the bird and, and then I'll take the shot. So th- it's a very, very similar process, just slight subtle differences. But what it allows me to do is be fully prepared for where my shots are. You know, so if, if the bird flies in a way that I'm not going to be able to make that shot, I'm not going to even take the shot. Uh, you know, so but I, I have, in a way, almost visualized or seen before it happens where the birds can go and where I can make those shots. And by almost marking where all my other hunters are and my dogs, I know, you know, where I can't move. I know where what's unsafe. And then, I and you know, hopefully we get the opportunity to set everybody up so we can kind of cover every direction. And, you know, other than that, basically, if the bird flushes and it's not in a position I can shoot it, then I just get down. (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. And rounding out our 10 clips of the previous 99 episodes of the Project Up and Podcast, we look at episode number 91, Modern Shotgun Manufacturing with Wes Lang and Giorgio Garini of Caesar Garini, in a clip that features some in-depth discussion on modern shotgun manufacturing, which ultimately highlights the level of production, design, development, and manufacturing that Caesar Garini is operating at. This is another great conversation for the shotgun enthusiasts out there. Episode number 91 with Wes Lang and Giorgio Garini of Caesar Green. We could talk for hours of just barrel yep. regulation, yep. and I know you're interested in any more topics. Uh, well, but barrels can vary, you know, like almost snake as they're... Mm. If it's they're laid up in certain ways, there is and a, these guys with their eye can. There is a tension can, inside of the material. It's unbelievable. Hmm. You buy a, a batch of material, even though you order a special inquire with the material, with kind of material, percentage of nickel, percentage of molybdene, or whatever you the chrome plate. Doesn't matter. We arrive in, in the perfect fork, but when arrive, usually we we keep one year one year outside the material under the the weather just because to receive the sun water yep. cold hot elements element because uh, reduce the tension inside change a lot trust me change a lot hmm. there's there's a lot of, so a common complaint i hear with other guns is that uh over and unders um in the price categories that you guys are in, is that the guns aren't regulated really well. So I think it's a real advantage that your guns, uh, and I know that some of these other makers, they don't seem to have the same type of quality control and regulate, they're not regulating to the degree you are. And it seems like a real advantage of your guns is hearing what you put into them. First of all, most of the guns are never tested. And nobody know exactly, and nobody are really understand or capable to understand where is the point of impact exactly of the gun. Okay, and uh, one more one more point is that usually the only gun that have some point of impact test are the shooting gun. So the shooting gun community is not so famous, is not so popular. There are there is not so many company. It's something you have to put a lot of commitment into. But, you know, when you talk about manufacturing and you talk about all this technology and steel and everything, yep. it's one of the it's one of those things that makes double gun manufacturing, you know, kind of the romantic side of a little bit that a lot of human, you know, skill and passion still has to go in that. And there is not a, I mean, I'm sure if you've got the aerospace industry involved or something, but there is really not a higher tech solution to what we're talking about, yep. you know. The final soldering after regulation of the barrel and and uh, the rest of it all goes up. It's very high tech, but that's still the human eye. Yep. You know, the guy and the machine you use to adjust everything is how old is the machine for regulation? 
It's probably uh, there was a peaks where seventy five hundred years old, yeah. right? And you can't you, buy them anymore. You right? need to see the shadow inside, yeah. and with the shadow you understand. But the shadow is very, very precise. Eh? Huh. And he holds them up to the window, right? Like yeah, he holds yeah, it very. Exactly. I've seen I've seen pictures of the guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you see exactly with the shadow, with the experience. If you have to touch the tubes first and barrel just in case later, and remember that. One another important point that nobody knows: soldering a barrel up 71 centimeter is not a big deal. Uh, everybody are able to solder to and, and have a good quality barrel. But when you start to solder the barrel 26, sorry, uh, 30 inch, 76 centimeter, 30 inch Got or it. 32 inch, forget it, 34 inch, change a word. Eh? So as, as the barrels lengthen, yeah. the skill required to... Well, there's two, there's two components to that, just to elaborate on yeah. what Giorgio said. The longer and the smaller, the more difficult. Smaller meaning like gauge? 32-inch 410 is the most difficult. Gotcha. Probably more than the 34-inch 12-gauge. Because it is a the slighter degree. nobody made until we made it in production. And it was one that took a little bit of, little bit of real trial and error to get that correct. When you shot with the barrel with the speedy camera, it's true. You can see the the barrel that makes this movement, the tubes. Eh? Oh, so the barrel the barrel's flexing and you can see. It's unbelievable. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Wow. Yeah, there's a... So there's five centimeters more, change a lot. Sure, okay. So, and the longer that tube gets, the more those waves have more and they can affect more. Absolutely, but not only that, but the ability to see the correctly, you know, because you're looking down a little small tube. Not only that, but soldering up a little small tube without getting any variations because it's not as rigid because it's a smaller tube, mm -hmm. right? So the soldering process is much more delicate to make sure we don't get any variances in the process. Yep. Uh, and so from a production standpoint, the challenge is extreme with a 32-inch 410 being on one end of the spectrum and super easy with a 26-inch 12-gauge. Yep. All right, and that is a wrap on episode number 100 of the Project Upland podcast. Thank you to everybody for listening. I sincerely appreciate it. To all of my previous guests, if your episode was not featured on episode number 100, that is by no means a reflection on the quality of the conversation that I have had with all of you. I thank everybody that has contributed and participated in the Project Upland podcast through its 100 episodes, and I look forward to working with you all again on future episodes. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you on the next episode of the Project Upland podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.